Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favorite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Whenua of Tifanganiwai Tara, where I'm recording today. What a week we've had! Yeah, yeah. it has been a week. It's been more than a week, actually, because you went and had an adventure, didn't ah, you? I did have an adventure. Saw some dolphins, saw some whales, saw lots of seals who were very smelly. Um, <laughs> How were selkies ever considered attractive? I think people just go mad when they spend too much time on the ocean, you know? Start hallucinating. Like, when I was looking for whales on the boat, I was like, it's a whale! No, it's not. It's some seaweed. So that's how these things happen. <laughs> I mean, what is reality, anyway? Very true, and a very good segue into um, what we're doing this week. So this week we read chapters three to Thor through the theme of reality. Yes, we did. Challenging. Yeah, it really was. It's really hard to define reality, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, once you get into it, it's like, what is real anyway? That's how I felt at the end of these chapters. I'm like, yeah, what is real? What is life? What is anything? You know? Yeah, well, that's it. I had a long think about what story I wanted to tell this week, but one kept coming to me. Mm. Um, and it was about something that didn't actually happen. Oh. oh. Okay. So my partner and I, right after we got married, the baby switch flipped. Like I had never experienced this before. We were going to take our time. We were going to start a family when, once we were 30 and that was totally fine. But at 25, I just had to have a baby. It was mm. bonkers, but... We sort of thought, you know, why wait? Why not just go for it? So we did. Um, so I threw myself into taking all the boxes. I did the research. I budgeted. I drew up a birth plan. We researched midwives. And within a year of deciding to have a baby, we were parents. So it happened pretty quick for us, which was really lucky. Now, I had prepared as well as I could, and I think we did a pretty good job. Like, looking back, it was a pretty smooth transition between not having any children and having a, a child. Um, mm -hmm. And we had really great support systems in place. I was able to deliver at home. And I had my baby on my bed and my good friend Lucy was with us and I got to listen to Bonnie Ver on repeat the whole time. <laughs> um, and so my daughter was born at 1.55 p.m. on a chilly late July afternoon. Uh, now, I did not think I was having a girl. I am the oldest of five girls and I am a girl, so I wanted a girl because it's like my native language, I guess. I was okay yeah. with not having a girl, but I still really wanted a girl. I just didn't think that it was going to happen. Um, and so when our baby was still an inside baby... We called it Spec. So it was just a baby, mm. a genderless baby called Spec. And then our baby was born. And suddenly she was a baby girl and she wasn't Spec anymore. Mm. So a few days after she was born, I woke up from a nap in a state of absolute panic. I checked. There was my girl, tucked in next to me, sleeping, mm. safe as houses. But I couldn't find the other baby. I couldn't find Spec. Oh. Spec wasn't under the bed or under the pillows or anywhere. Spec was gone. The panic was enormous. Mm. Like, how could I have lost a whole entire baby? Where had this baby gone? Of course, I hadn't lost a whole entire baby. The baby I'd had was right there. It just took a really long mm -hmm. time for me to regain my equilibrium in that moment and tell myself that there was no loss. It was just a dream or something. Mm -hmm but it felt so real. Hmm. It's been a decade, and whenever I think back to that moment, the loss of that not-baby still hits me like mm -hmm. a brick. Mm -hmm. It wasn't real. It was never real. 
but it felt like it was real. And like with some distance, I, th- I think it was kind of my brain's way of reconciling speck with the baby that I did have. Mm-hmm. Like they were never the same person because one was an imagined hopeful future and the other one is an actual person. But mm-hmm. I didn't really have a way to kind of work through that. So my brain, you know, made an event for it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I really have a point here except to say while the loss wasn't real, my heart and brain felt like it was. Mm-hmm. My body relives the memory of it when my mind calls back to it. So reality, while it is a distinct, observable, and shared experience, according to the OED, um, can be affected by what is not, in fact, reality. Yeah, I think that's a very poignant story, and thank you for sharing it. But it's also this thing that, you know, just because... You know, it's like Dumbledore says, just because something's happening inside your head doesn't mean it's not real. Like, because you're experiencing something. You're experiencing yeah. the emotions, and that is real to you. And I think we see that a lot in these chapters as well, where there's, like, very obvious shifts and, like, yes, this is real, but it's also not. You know, this is something that you're experiencing. And just because yeah. that experience doesn't align with what is necessarily considered real doesn't make it any worse real. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think where I came down on what to decide reality was, was whether or not it was observable by more than one person. Because all Mm. reality is subjective, right? So you could argue that every Mm -hmm. person's experience is a real experience and every person's reality is a real reality. Mm -hmm. As I was talking this over with my husband, he's like, we can't go too far into relativism here. And I was just like, yes, I know. But (laughs) I think when you can share an experience with someone, that's when it can be considered real. Mm. Yeah, because otherwise you get into this point where if you think about it too hard, like I think I made it when I was doing the marginalia, I made this point of being like, well, everyone's reality is completely unique. Like you experience the world completely uniquely in your way. Ergo, there is no shared reality because we all have our own perceptions of reality. And I was thinking about, sometimes I think about this too much and I freak myself out. So sometimes I think about how like, what what is to say that your perception of the color blue is the same as my perception of the color blue maybe your blue is my green and we'll never know but then you can think well maybe everyone has the same favorite color and we all just (laughs) perceive it differently yeah and they just like i'm fascinated like by people who are colorblind and then you see these videos on tiktok of whatever of them getting those glasses that show them color for the first time purple or even like when they see how green grass is or something like that they're just like really shocked by that and like is this how you see the world the whole time and yeah it's just you know we live in the same reality but we're not experiencing it the same way yeah absolutely i love color and i am like a quilter and designer of things this is my jam right so not having access to all of the colors the full spectrum would make me very upset that always hit me in little miss sunshine in the car when he realizes he's colorblind yes every time right in the feels spoiler alert everyone (laughs) it's the best and worst part of that also steve carell as the depressed gay proust scholar is chef's kiss a fantastic performance such a good film. It really is. I need to watch that again. Okay. Did you have any moments of wonder this week? I did have a moment of wonder and it was on my uh, little adventure. So we had a long weekend and I flew down to Christchurch and went to Kaikoura with my friends, two of my friends. So Kaikoura is this little coastal town just north of Christchurch basically in Canterbury. It's about two hours drive north. Um, and it's known for its whales and whale watching and things because they've got this enormous, enormous Kaikoura Canyon, just like 25 k's off the coast or something. So normally if you'd have to go really far out to see whales, but because of this massive canyon, they're a lot closer to shore mm. than you normally would see them. So we went on this whale watching cruise, which for me is really stressful because I get incredibly seasick. Mm. Like I get seasick standing on a dock. Like it's really bad for me. So 
I had to really psych myself up to go and do it, but you know, I really wanted to. And um, we saw three blue whales, <gasps> which is just incredible. Like I didn't expect it because we there's a lot of sperm whales, like resident mm. sperm whales, so we expected that. I was kind of hoping for some orca because I haven't seen orca and their loads usually around Wellington, and I just never see them. But yeah, to see blue whales was just really unexpected. You know, there's only like two thousand of them in the wild, and I saw oh, three wow. of them. Amazing! So that's really cool. Oh, <laughs> I love whales. And I think you know the best moment of it was my friend's really. She loves animals, and she's really into whales. Like you know, just into animals. Like she really just appreciates the majesty of them in a way that I don't think a lot of people do. And she was so excited. Like she was like a little kid, like she just like pure unbridled enthusiasm and excitement. And it was just, it was just such a joy to witness and it gives you permission to be that joyful as well. And everyone on this cruise was just so excited. And it was just, yeah, it was just this moment of like shared humanity. And I just, yeah, a real moment of wonder. I love that. I think we don't give ourselves permission to not be cool about stuff. I want to be a giant nerd about so much stuff. I know. It's just like such joy. We should just do it. Yeah. Enthusiasm is one of the gifts of being a human being. We should be able to be enthusiastic about stuff. Stop trying to be cool, everyone. Yeah. Um, how about you? Do you have that moment of wonder? I really did. My younger son has some developmental issues. And so I've always given him haircuts at home, but he's kind of old enough and like able to sit still long enough and understands enough that we, with, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to get him a proper haircut. So I took him to a barber shop. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. So we took him to this barber shop and it's the same place my husband goes to cut his hair when there isn't a pandemic. And I, you know, we sat down and we talked about what would happen and um, we talked about what he wanted. And so we decided short back and sides. So we sit mm-hmm. in the chair. Classic. Yeah. So we sit in the chair. The barber is a lovely gentleman named Karim. And I haven't said anything about my son's diagnoses. I'd like sometimes, most of the time, I just let people see that mm-hmm. I love my kids and accept my kids. And like, that's how we are. And I'll coach mm-hmm. my children through like social interactions if they need to. So when we sat down, I said, say hello to Karim. Hello, Karim. You know, we were <laughs> kind of going through this. About halfway through um, getting the little like cloak on to protect him, mm-hmm. uh, my son discovered that in the old timey barber chair, there's a little ash tray and it lifts out yeah oh yeah like the little metal flip top thing so he thought this is the coolest thing ever so he pulls it out of the arm of the chair and I'm just like waiting for them to get cross at him nobody said anything so I was like okay he can hold on to it he can flick it back and forth he's not gonna hurt it so the haircut starts Mm -hmm. and the hair is falling off of him all around him (laughs) and my son starts picking up the hair and putting it in the ashtray And the barber notices this and clocks it. And instead of like saying something or being strange about it, he just started giving my son more hair. Yeah. And it was a really beautiful moment where I just thought like, here's this guy who has seen this kid doing something completely random. And for me, like, I don't like, that's just my son. He always finds an interesting thing to do with interesting things. Like that's how he is. (laughs) But to have someone else just clock it and quietly adjust and adapt to it and then make the situation a positive experience. I felt like I will come to you forever for haircuts like if you could cut my hair I would have you cut like he was so lovely and gentle so yeah my moment of wonder was just sometimes trusting other people to be good is definitely worth the risk even though I'm very protective of my kids and I'm very much their advocate and their like warrior sometimes other people just can do it without me having to be explicit and say like you will accommodate and advocate and be kind so yeah Oh, that's so nice. It really was so nice. It was just a beautiful moment. And also, I'll send you a picture of my son because you will crack up at him. He looks so funny. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I know. Right? 
That's some chain spiking. It's, it's <laughs> like really like a Bart Simpson haircut. It cracked me up. Look how happy he is, though. Oh, what a sweetheart. Yeah. Uh, should we do chapter summaries? So in chapter three, Richard tries to return to his regular life, but he discovers he's effectively invisible. He sets out to find Dor again by looking for the floating market. A homeless man with connections to London below introduces him to the rat speakers, who aren't keen to help. Dor and the Marquis de Carabas travel to Dor's family home. Chapter four. Richard is saved by a rat. Krupp and Vandermar get further instructions from their employer and hire a bodyguard. Dora and the Marquis relive the murder of Dor's family while looking for her father's diary. Richard bonds with his guide Anesthesia. Together they brave the Knight's Bridge and Anesthesia dies. Richard is horrified. As am I. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I've said it before, but I've forgotten most of this book, but I felt it so much when she died this time. It was not okay. I was extremely angry. I'm feeling it a lot more this time. Like, I've read this book a couple of times... And I I think because I'm taking so much time and doing such a close reading, a lot of it is hit, hitting me a lot harder. Mm. So the Marquis' behavior is really doing my head in. Yeah. And I think in the past, because I read books so quickly, or you're just like, oh yeah, he's a bit of a cad and that's just his character and I just brush past it and read on. But because I'm spending so much time with the chapters, I'm finding it really hard. It's unpalatable. Yeah. I had the same really reaction is. where I was just like, wh- like, what does it cost him to just take a moment and not be a jerk? What would the cost be? One thing that seems to be yeah. really typical of London Below is that there's a lot of, I don't know, not like a lack of empathy, but just something. Compassion? Yeah, definitely a lack of compassion. It, like, I wrote that people seem to be self-interested first and they have very little to offer that is free and that extends to like compassion Mm. everything's a swap or a barter or a sacrifice everything has a cost Mm. and it seems like the cost of being kind which to me is nominal like someone's upset you just let if you can't comfort them just say like i'm sorry i can't help or like give them space whatever you need to do but you don't need to be cruel and he's cruel Mm. he is cruel I also made that comment where I was like, there's a lack of compassion in London below because no one does anything for free. You know, everything has a payment or it comes as a command from someone higher than them. They're Mm. doing something because of the hierarchy. Like even Mr. Croup, who seems completely unshakable by anything, has that moment where he kind of cringes when he's on the phone with his employer. And it's like, even in that, the hierarchy descends down and it influences the way people behave. Yeah, but it does seem very much like self-interest first. Yeah, and it's like almost being kind or going out of your way for someone else makes you vulnerable. Yeah, I was listening to um, 99% Invisible, but there was a five-part series just before Christmas about homelessness. One of the things that Katie Mingle, who produced the segment, talked about was that when you're in an encampment, like because everything is so fraught all of the time, tensions run really high and people often just don't have the bandwidth to cope, but there still often actually are that support for others. Mm. You'd think that it would be diametrically opposed, like, you know, you're homeless and you're scared and you're wet and cold or miserable or you're trying to get some sort of resolution or just survive. But then, you know, you have someone who's digging a trench so that a person next to them in the tent doesn't get wet. Yeah. It feels like a lot of London Below is based on the idea of, like, poverty and and scarcity. Yeah, and I don't understand why that is a thing. So I was going to say, you know, um, I was going to ask you why why that is. Like, why do you think there's such a discrepancy between London above and London below? This is completely tangential, but I was really sick on Friday, so I was home from work and I watched Harry Potter, mm. as I do. So I watched the first three films 
just to have them on in the background and I sort of doze off and whatever. And I really noticed that the way that the wizarding world is portrayed in the films, I don't really get this in the book so much, but in the films, they're really portrayed as quite, you know, kind of scruffy and, you know, more marginalized in the sense that they don't have as much money. Like there's obviously the Malfoys and there's a very select few who have a lot of money, but the average wizarding world, like if you go into the leaky cauldron, it's very disheveled. Yeah. And it just, it made me think of, you know, this book. And I'm like, why is this always that... Is this just the the whole idea that when you're a marginalized community, you don't have the privileges that would allow you to have, you know, the nice society yeah. and the commons? It seems very Victorian, like um, like the noble poor or something. Mm. Like the Cratchits, you know. Yeah, I guess there's just a part of me that really rejects the notion that just because you're poor, you would not have a nice house you know like yeah. i'm not i don't mean nice in the materialistic way but you would have like you know a clean house or something like that it just seems like this whole idea that just because you don't have money you will automatically live in filth like it seems really derivative to me yeah i understand i i agree it's not it's not a correlation or it's not a causation thing i think it's a correlation but also i, I do look at things like people being time poor and not having enough as i said before enough mm-hmm. bandwidth to kind of cope with taking care of a household as well as working you know 80 hour weeks or whatever at two minimum wage jobs i mean yeah and i totally get that as well like i always say that i can tell i'm really depressed if my house is a complete mess Mm -hmm. because that's the first thing that goes like i'll just suddenly notice that there are a pile of clothes everywhere and all these things that i would never normally tolerate suddenly is like around me and i'm like oh okay yeah mental health has slipped a bit clearly yeah the negative feedback loop of i need to do this in order to feel good and like not being able to do it because you don't feel good brains are fun yay so i guess that kind of plays into it i don't know there's just something about it where i'm like why can't they have a nice london below why must it be this terrible place like (laughs) yeah and the idea of a london above being this like normal world where people are still acting in terrible ways like, we've seen that Jessica's very selfish and ambitious, but in not in a way that we can really relate to. And we've seen that Gary is sending, you know, gross emails to a person who's not his girlfriend. So mm-hmm. he's conducting himself in a way that's very unbecoming. Like, we see all of these terrible things happening in London above, but it's in London below where Richard feels most horrified by it mm-hmm. and comments on it. And yet he's still compassionate, which I think is really important. Yeah. When we watch the Marquis, it is Marquis. I did yes. I did listen to the audiobook and, and figure it out, so it is Marquis. When I was reading about the Marquis de Carabas and Dor, I was thinking, here's an older man and a younger girl going on a journey together mm-hmm. to an end. And the same thing happens in parallel with Richard and Anesthesia. But whereas the Marquis is just very cold and brutal and he's seeking one thing and he doesn't give Dor any space or real comfort or room for the grief that she so obviously feels. You have Richard here who listens to Anesthesia's life story and wants to hear about it and wants to understand more about the world he's found himself in. He's very compassionate and at the end where they're at the Knight's Bridge you know they're holding hands and they're smiling at each other and he's like I will take care of you. I will walk across this Mm. very terrifying bridge with you. And then he's devastated when she doesn't make it. Yeah, I think it was really telling, you know, that she's like, oh, you don't want to hear my story. And he was like, no, I really do. I thought that was a real sign of compassion for each other. Like she has compassion for his story and he had compassion for hers. And yeah, then they go across the bridge. And even when he when she introduces them to the the woman who joins them, she's like, I'm his guardian. And I thought that was really poignant. And then they walk across the bridge. And afterwards, he's like, we have to go back. We can't just like he's he's got such a good heart. Right. And he just he can't 
let her go. And it just really hits really hard that she seemed really sweet and lovely and she should never have had to do this thing that obviously terrified her. Yes, she should have. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about anesthesia. I was mad. I was mad that she died. I was furious. I just thought, why this? What's the point? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was the point? I mean, I'm sure that there is a point. We'll see if when we get to the end of the book, I'll see if I'm still mad and if I've gotten over it. Um, I also thought it was interesting when Richard, he and Anesthesia are in London above and they're walk, taking a little shortcut. And he's like, have, have you ever tried to return to all this? He said, quiet, warm, inhabited houses, late night cars, the real world. And I'm like, why is that more real than London Below? Mm. Like London Below is real to Anesthesia. That is where she spent most of her time. Yeah. But he still thinks of London above as the real world. So there's a part of him that's really rebelling about the fact that it's actually that this is happening to him and especially earlier when he was sort of going through the whole turning invisible thing. He's like, oh, you know, despite all the evidence, he can't believe that this is happening. Yeah, that was one of my marginalia as well. Mm. Like, he just says it as if it's going to make it true. That was rough, though. Look, chapter three, I could not read it again and I would be very happy about that. That just felt a little too on the nose. It's everyone's worst fear, right? Being unloved, unseen. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it made it as a like even worse for me was on page fifty nine. It says, you know, as a child, Richard had had nightmares in which he simply wasn't there, in which no matter how much noise he made, no, no matter what he did, nobody ever noticed him at all. And then he lives that nightmare. Yeah. For real. Yeah. I thought there was a lot about um like the the shifting of reality or reality being already a bit too transparent like at the beginning of chapter three it answered the question i had last time which is where is everybody's parents um he doesn't have a father and his mother had died while he had been living in london but there was a a line at the beginning where where his mother's on her deathbed and he's gone up to see her as she dies and it was sometimes she had known him other times she had called him by his father's name so she already is out of reality enough to not really know her circumstances and not really know who he is that really hit me when he talked about his mum because i just thought back into the first chapter where he she made him that walnut cake and the thermos to take on the train and then she just fades away yeah one of the things i'm really struggling with is how inconsequential women are in the story it's really bothering mm-hmm. me. I'm, I'm really having a hard time with it. You know, anesthesia exists to not eat a banana in an erotic way and be dirty mm-hmm. and small and a girl and be killed. Um, Jessica mm-hmm. exists to be an unkind but very classy uh, comparison to Richard. His mother exists enough to provide a little bit of sustenance for him, but then doesn't recognize him and dies because she can't live without her husband, apparently. It's just, like, the women seem to lack a lot of agency. I just feel the same, like, Joss Whedon frustrations with this text that I felt, you know, when I was watching, like, Firefly, or, like, this could be so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's because we expect more from our texts now. Like, I think what passed for, you know, the strong female character back in the 90s just really isn't cutting it anymore. Oh, absolutely. And look, it's not a criticism because, it, well, I mean, it is a criticism, but it's not like saying that this is not a worthy or readable text. It's just, I do have to place it in the context that it was written in order mm. to be able to accept that it's part of it. For me, knowing that that was a normal, common thing at that time in TV, in shows and comics it's hard yeah it's still but now to like 2020 2021 you're going come on we can do better than this in 20 2014 i think it was i decided i was going to read only women authors for a year Mm -hmm. Um, and i had so many people contact me to tell me that it was a disgusting choice i was making and i just thought oh why why is it a problem like what am i really like who's really losing out on this why would anyone think that 
that's a bad thing to do. I don't understand. Oh, you know, restricting <laughs> yourself from all of the good works. By, look, I don't know. After that year, I found that when I went back to just reading whatever, whatever sounded interesting, it's probably about 80% female author. They just get a bad rap. Like, I, I get really frustrated when people talk about chiclet, for example, because I'm like, it's not chiclet. It's just general fiction. You've just decided to call it chiclet because it's written by a woman. When a man writes something with a romance in it, no one calls it chiclet. It really drives me insane. <laughs> Yeah, just looking at the the bad love scene awards every year and reading some of the text that comes out of that. Have these men ever had an intimate physical relationship with anyone? I don't think they have. So my friend actually works on the magazine that runs that every year. And so I've actually been to one of those awards, like when they actually hand out the award. It's amazing. It's the best time of the year. They didn't do it last year. I was a bit sad. (laughs) They were like, there's enough bad things about 2020. We're not doing this as well. But, you, you know, you, you raise a valid point because I think if a woman had written this, what would that have looked like? I, I think, yeah, we're probably veering off the sacred text into authorial intent yeah. territory here, but it is just interesting. I, I think the description of anesthesia as like giggling like a Japanese schoolgirl felt very objectifying oh, to yeah. me. And, yeah, yeah. You know, her story was very sad and very tragic, but also it. It's a trope. Yes, it that's it didn't feel genuine. Yeah, I completely kind of glossed over that. I think because normally I just, you know, read it in a single sitting and I just blow past these things. And so I was like, oh, no, this is going to be like a real tropey thing. And like, yeah. oh, it's kind of like the fridging of the girlfriend now to like motivate him on, you know. Yes, like just, yes. Ugh. Thank you. That's it. That's what it, it was bothering me because it's a fridging. That's mm. it. Thank you. OK, that that has resolved my irritation. Now I understand what happened and I know why I'm mad. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, that was it. Anesthesia was fridged, and I am not happy about it. Yeah, and I thought, you know, the Marquis' behavior towards Dor, he is just so all over the show. Like, he, you know, has no compassion for her and what she's going through. But he's also, like, he's obviously just not okay with emotion. Any kind of emotion really mm. freaks him out. He's just, like, really, ooh. Do you think it's because it's something that's outside his control? Yeah, because there is that line where he says, you know, he never likes to ask, you know, he never likes to admit that he doesn't know something. So Mm. maybe because he doesn't know how to react to someone who is in that state, he doesn't like being in that place because it makes him feel useless. Um, You know, there's that line where on page 82 where he says he did not comfort well. I'm like, well, that's an understatement. Yeah, Yeah, I had that one underlined too. I just thought like, no, you're (laughs) actively deciding not to. Uh, so look a pro tip for anybody out there if all you have to say is how can I help what can I do to help yes you? most people would be able to say look I just need some space or like I'm really upset can I just complain to you like just how can I help these words will mm. save your life if you feel like you're not being compassionate if you don't know what to do when someone's upset start with how can I help also if you're like comforting someone who's whole family has just died tragically Hmm. Uh, maybe don't steal their possessions and say oh well he's not using it as you leave openly and covertly that was what really got me is that he swiped something sneakily and then he outrageously stole this watch and he sort of dared her to say something like you know they there's that line being all these emotions flickered over her face yeah grief and anger and finally resignation yeah because she knows she can't fight him because then he'll just say he won't help her and then what what is happening here he's also just shady because he also there's a moment where she is like oh i don't know why i didn't sense it before that there's a door here and he's like oh well you know you were upset so that was a moment where he's giving her a pass where he's like well here's a justification for your actions Mm. but he also doesn't allow her to use that justification while she's with him i'm like what is happening here i wondered if that was like him 
thinking that she was just saving face, maybe. Mm. I, I think Dora is as she seems. Yeah. I feel like I can trust her to be as she seems. Mm. She's not cagey because she's got an agenda. She's just protective because she needs to be protective, right? Whereas the Marquis is cagey yeah. because he enjoys the game. Yeah, he's got lots of strings he's pulling. He's like Littlefinger in Game of Thrones, and I hate it. <laughs> yeah, Littlefinger, he's the worst. Um, I had something that I wanted to run past you. Oh, yes. So, in Chapter 3, there's that whole bit where Richard is kind of coming to terms with the fact that Dor has just left, and he's just, like, trying to rearrange everything that's happened in his mind. And on page 58, there's the line that says, The events of the previous two days became less and less real and increasingly less likely. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of sitting in his flat, and he's like, Yeah, okay, that was all a fever dream. I don't know what happened. He's just going to brush it off. But then he spends the whole day inside, and he's just, like, doing things pottering around the house whatever whatever and i posit that if richard had actually left his house after door left and he went and talked to some people and interacted with london he would not have become invisible thoughts i think you're right i think there was sort of a period where if he had gone out and had immediately like interacted and maybe not told people about it but instead of just marinating in it had gone and done Mm. something yeah i think you're right that he wouldn't have fallen into invisibility quite so quickly yeah i think if he had gone and like had a drink with gary or just like gone and visited a mate or you know tried to call jessica or talk to her or something then that would have tethered him to london above and the previous section we like the marquis says to him oh it might already be too late so there's this theory that yeah he could actually still cling to london above he just needs to choose it and you know anesthesia says that it it has to be one or the other you can't have both so he has to actively choose it but by sitting in his flat and just kind of like marinating over what had happened it was like he was choosing london below yeah i thought that too i thought it was very strange that he didn't go out i would have like immediately been like okay time to do a grocery shop time to go do something yeah can't be sitting in here where all the creepy things happen must go for a walk yeah exactly yeah i don't think i would have been comfortable i just think yeah it's quite intense how rapidly the world rejects him and also like that technology won't even work for him like his alarm doesn't go off the next morning like all these things yeah money must not work for everyone in london below because there's like they swap or barter right so there there isn't a Mm. currency is there no but then i'm intrigued by the homeless man who you know he sees richard when he's trying to get money out of Iliaster, yeah. that's his name, I've forgotten. Yeah, so Iliaster comes up and he asks Richard for spare change as he's trying to use the ATM and he's like, mm, take my ATM card. He's like, no, that's no good to me. And then Iliaster takes him to meet the rats, Lord Rat Speaker. And it's like, okay, so Iliaster comes and goes. He clearly exists in both worlds. Yeah, he's able to buy things from people. Like, this is the thing. Yeah. Like, how complete is this invisibility? Like, what, what part of being marginalized would Richard have to be? Like, how, how bad would he have to be marginalized in order to then be able to kind of step into London above from time to time. I guess, yeah, because as the, as what we're saying here, that because sometimes people treat homeless people as if they're invisible and just pretend you don't see them to make yourself feel better about the world. Is that the idea that that's the invisibility acting? Or are there people like Richard who can see, who like have the capability? There's definitely folklore of people who can like see into fairyland and see Mm -hmm. what it looks like and, and see through glamours. So... Like, if you have a stone with a hole in it, like, if you look through it, you can see the true nature of things. Yeah. Yeah, so I wonder if maybe, like, Iliaster just knows where to go to get coffee from someone who can actually see him and interact with him, but everyone else would just flow around him. Mm, It's quite alarming, really. (laughs) Like, to experience that would be so stressful. Oh, yeah. It gave me a lot of anxiety just reading it. The thing that really got me was when he was just trying to have a bath and these people just came in to look at his house. Yeah. 
if you're going through something like that and you feel like you've become invisible and you're starting to make, you're like, okay, so no one can see me. I'll just go home and regroup. And then they're like, oh no, your home is basically being repossessed. Yeah. Like just to be erased from the world is just terrifying. It's like, how, what's the magic? What is it? Why, why, why why can't everyone remember him? (laughs) Like, what is the functional thing that happens and I guess part of the mystery of the story is that we don't really get the answer to that right Mm. but it really bothers me that I don't know the mechanics of it it's kind of like you have to to protect London below no one can know it exists right so you have to wipe the trace of and instead of just wiping the person's memory you just wipe the person yeah which is probably more effective but I wonder if people would remember him if he didn't interact with them Mm. because i like i wonder if there's someone who walked past him every day hasn't seen him in a while and goes oh whatever happened to richard i wonder if there's if it's the like interacting with people that they don't see him but like other people could still remember him i wonder if it's the like increasing desperation that's like a fail safe where it like infects people like a virus that oh yeah that's interesting because like jessica kind of remembers him in a way that people at his work don't seem to like gary doesn't seem to remember him at Mm. all she doesn't remember the specifics but she can place him yeah she knows she's met him yeah maybe there's the the barista that richard buys his coffee from every day it's like i wonder what happened to richard i haven't seen him and he just must have moved away yeah yeah i think that must be it i'm going to say that that fits into my mind as a way of it working once the london below has set into him Mm. everyone that he interacts with is like infected with a protective inoculation where they're like nope can't see it don't see it interesting look i'm a world builder i have to put everything (laughs) together well speaking of world building can we talk about the house with our doors or whatever it's called yes oh it's 100 teleportation and i love it i'm here for it it's so cool like on page 81 it's described as her grandfather had constructed the house taking a room from here a room from there all through london discreet and doorless So in terms of reality, this house exists outside of reality, right? Mm. And also, essentially outside of time, because she mentions that, oh, you know, this was a Victorian swimming pool that had been pulled in, and maybe it was demolished, but now it exists here. So it's like an imprint of the house. Yeah, it's a memory or an echo. I think the way I was thinking about it, I sort of thought like interdimensionality. Like Mm. she's able to step into a universe where not only is this possible, but also it has happened and these houses or these rooms have been aggregated into a, a linked space. But I also thought of it as like a hub with spokes coming out of it. Yeah, that's interesting. That way you can still get there, but you have to sort of know where the hub is. Yeah, you need to know where you're going, right? You can't just like wander through the halls, mm-hmm. which makes me wonder how Krupp and Vandermark got in. That's what I want to know too. But they're obviously really good at getting into places because they get into the bodyguard's room, despite the fact that he'd stacked all the beds against the door, they somehow managed to get in, so. Um, I just have to say that I love Dawes family's names. Yes. Portia and Portico. And Arch. Arch. Beautiful. It's cool. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, so back to the house, the door, the, the house with no doors. Um, and the reality of how that works. I thought it was so interesting that the memories are imprinted in the walls. Like these really traumatic memories. And I wonder, do you think it's because it was traumatic or is that just the last thing to have happened in the room? Is that what imprints in the wall? Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was like everything that you experience you have to live through again or if it was just as like something she had left behind to keep people out. Mm. I didn't know if that was a door thing or 
a fact of how it operated. I wasn't really clear on the how of it. I just thought it was the absolute audacity of the Marquis to be like, oh, well, that hurt. You should have warned me about it. Uh, yeah. No. I felt like that was actually him <laughs> experiencing enough misery to kind of understand that this was actually a terrible thing that was happening. Like the first time he's like, well, whatever. And the second time he's like, okay, that was pretty awful. And then they live through a third time where they've accessed the diary and they have to watch, basically they watch her father be killed, but not explicitly, but yeah. But she also mentions that she went in and cleaned up the bodies. And I'm like, wow, that is an intense thing for you to have done. Mm. Oh, good Lord. I know, poor baby. It's just horrible. I mean, she's what, 15, 16? She's just a kid, really. Mm. And, And I get the feeling that she's not actually that age, but that seems to be where she is. I was also wondering, because she says to the Marquis, because he asks her, how did you escape? And she's like, oh, well, I was out. Did you know there's a Roman legion camped by wherever it was who, you know, deserted from some legion or whatever? I'm like, maybe she does travel through time. Yeah. Do these people, because they've entered London below, do you just stop aging and they've just been down there ever since? It's just, it's quite... It seems very malleable, the way that time moves. Yeah, I thought that too. I also thought that anesthesia was definitely from like the 40s or 50s or 60s even. And she wears her little pin that says I'm 11 and she ran away when she was 11. And now she's like maybe 14. Yeah. So she, is she just frozen? Yeah. Did she wake up with, because, you know, she said she fell asleep and then she woke up and she was with the rats. Mm. So I feel like that when she was pulled down into London Below, that's when she stopped or paused or Mm. was put into a kind of stasis. It would kind of make sense. Like if you're coming from London Above and your entire world is being, you know, you're being erased from London Above, then it kind of makes sense that you would just stop existing. So you Mm. stop aging as well. You just... Yeah. They're like ghosts. They are like ghosts. Hmm. Interesting. Another unreality I thought which was really beautifully described, is the Knight's Bridge itself. Mm. Um, It's like a a bridge that shouldn't exist. It holds unnamed horrors. It, like, turns into the concept of darkness and nightmares. But, like, it's real enough to kill someone. Mm. And people, very strong, violent people, are afraid to cross it by themselves. It could have been one of the bridges over the Thames 500 years ago, thought Richard, a huge stone spanning out over a vast black chasm into the night. There was no sky above it, no water below. It rose into darkness. Richard wondered who built it and when. He wondered how something like this could exist beneath the city of London without everyone knowing. Yeah, and I thought another thing that he, on page 104, he says, I suppose, Richard said haltingly, we weren't in any real danger. It was like a haunted house, a few noises in the dark, and your imagination does the rest. There wasn't anything to be scared of, was there? The woman looked at him almost pittingly, you know? And I just thought he's convinced himself like oh okay so i walked across Mm. it but it's not it's not real right like it can't be real because you know how can this bridge exist how can this thing exist i'm safe so there's no danger it's the same thing as like people who stop taking their antidepressants because they feel fine (laughs) like Mm -hmm. this isn't doing me any good i feel fine (laughs) or people who deny that sexism is a thing because they don't experience it yeah, exactly. Is that, like, there's some privilege in being the person who survived walking across the Knight's Bridge. Because mm. then you get to think that, like, oh, yeah, it might have been a little bit scary and hallucinating. But, like, you know, we survived. It's fine. I also thought it was interesting that he said, you know, right as he comes off the bridge and just as they come through the darkness, he's, there's that line where he's like, Richard had the strange feeling that it was the same room they had just left. You know, anesthesia earlier also talks about the fact that you have to go over the bridge to get to where the floating market is mm. and... 
Richard's like, no, can't you just go over the top? And she's like, no, no, you have to enter it this way. Otherwise, you'll find it, but you'll find the place, but the market won't be there. Yeah, so it's actually and like he's the like, portal. Yeah, and he's like, you know, that's ridiculous. Either something's there or it's not, but it's you have to go through the right gate to get to where you're going. So again, it's this idea of you're actually being transported somewhere else, maybe a different time or a different, like, dimension. Um, and, like, I love the idea of you're crossing the bridge, but you're not actually crossing the bridge. You're just... You're almost just going through into another yeah another dimension mm. so you're just emerging in the same place as you've been because you're just not to bang on about harry potter again um but i but. am reading goblet of fire at the moment and that's exactly mm. what they did with the quidditch world cup right they just yeah. hid an entire campsite in the moors made it a place where they could have the world cup and then like charmed all of the humans to suddenly remember appointments and rush off yeah if you're not meant to be there if you're not meant to go you don't get in or maybe there's mm. a toll. The woman that they're traveling with actually says there's a toll. I guess we don't know what the toll is. Is it just one life and that happened to be anesthesia? Or is it, you know, every 10 people it takes someone? Like, what is the toll? Yeah, because that's not tenable. If, like, this this is not a tenable thing. I also wonder if it's meant to be, like, a, a character judgment thing. Like, if you're strong enough to get through your nightmares, if you can endure the pain, then you can get, like, you know what I mean? Like, she was very yeah. plagued by the traumas that she'd experienced. And Richard was having these hallucinations, but they weren't his yeah, it's kind of like hallucinations. Yeah, are you strong enough or are you just going to give in to your hallucinations and kind of like veer off path? It's in Lord of the Rings when Frodo is walking through the dead marshes and Gollum's like, don't look at the lights. And of course, the first thing he does is look at the lights mm. and falls face first into this, you know, gets charmed by the, the lights. Um, anyway. Yeah, don't get fairy yeah, led. Exactly. This feels more like, you know, you're going to be galloped under a fairy mound and never seen again or mm -hmm. you know like you will be dragged into the lock and never seen again or you know when you come out you will waste away because nothing will ever be as good as fairyland yeah and that's interesting because when they're in london above mm. richard is like he sees london above and says it's fairyland it's fairyland and i just thought you know this is the same person who in the previous chapter was so proud of the fact that he had never been to london's tourist attractions mm. and was so dismissive after three years of living in london like yeah so blasé about it and now he's had that taken from him and he can't he emerges from the dark and he's like this is beautiful and he has this whole yeah. new appreciation for it and i think but also fairyland isn't real no no it's not yeah. and that's the the reality thing it's like you have a better appreciation for your reality but it's not a real thing it's just the perception a city has a reality, right? Like, there is one fixed reality, but the way we engage with it means our realities are different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it's the sharing of the reality. It's the sharing of an experience with other people that is what makes it a common truth, maybe. Yeah, and I think that's why we see such a fracture in Richard's reality when he's walking around, because no one else, you know, when he's still in London above, no one else shares that reality with him. And that's really... Not just a fracture of him of his reality, but a, a fracture of his identity. Like he's mm. really, he's really spiraling. Yeah, and it takes him so long to recognize that someone has actually spoken to him mm. when nobody has seen him all day, but he still expects them to. Mm. Yeah, like he's walking home and he's still waving at taxis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he's like, surely this is a dream. And then you know when he's caught out in his flat, he he's he's trying. He's like reason trying to reason with these people. Like I live here in the the scene where he's getting into the bath there's a line that says richard abandoned his clothes 
Mm. And I thought that was such an interesting turn of phrase. Like, it's like he's shedding his identity. He's just like, he's had such a terrible day. He's just abandoning all hope. And it is symbolized by him just like abandoning his clothes and getting into the bar. We've all been there. Just, yep. That was a hard chapter for me. I super did not like it. (laughs) No, I just kept thinking, what would I do in this situation? I think the hardest thing would be, like, I'm such a little community person. I would just be so devastated that the people closest to me didn't see me. And it's not just, I think, the recognizing that really struck me, but this idea that you were entirely erased. So if it was just like you were dead and gone... That would be one thing, because at least the memory of you would linger with people. Mm. I would love to know that, you know, I had some sort of lasting impact on people who cared about me. Yeah. But the idea that you were just completely gone and any contribution you would have made to the world is completely erased. It's like, that is the worst nightmare. Yeah. Well, my daughter's at that age now. She's almost 10. She's really struggling with the idea of death and permanence of death, mm. you know. Um, so we spend a lot of time talking about this, like, cuddled up. And one of the things that I said was, you know, even if I died, because she's like, I don't ever want you to die. And I said, well, you know, mm. I get it. I don't either. But the thing is, everybody who's ever loved me was loved by someone else. And it goes back and back and back, right? So we have this chain of love. By taking it, transforming it, and giving it on, we're still present. Like, we've we've been given this love, and therefore we've been given this ability to love. And so then by loving other people, we're actually passing ourselves on through it. So we will never really be gone because we've had this impact this effect on others but I I was really feeling like who loves Richard who has given that to Richard and who does Richard have to love because he's a very loving person yeah he is and he's really he's compassionate right he does care it kind of just makes me quite uncomfortable because I think about you know displaced people people who've you know been separated because of war refugees families torn apart yeah homeless people you know sometimes when those people die there is no one no one knows no one no one cares. Yeah. And that's a horrible thing. We should care. It's quite uncomfortable to sit with that. That's... <sighs> yeah. So, yeah. Reality. What is it? Why is it? Why does it? <laughs> it was a lot. This chapter, these two chapters, they were a lot. Um, I don't like reading mm. any of the Vandemar and Croup stuff. I just want to get past that as soon as possible. Yeah, they're gross. They're very gross and they're very horrible. And they're supposed to be. Like, they're supposed to make you feel like they're vile. Because they are. And I think it's almost easier because they're such caricatures of monsters. It reminds me, like, my grandma always used to tell me stories when I was little. Like, she was a prolific storyteller and I would get in bed with her and she would tell me a story every morning. And she would always tell me stories about the fox and the wolf. Like, it was always the fox and the wolf. And so with Croup and Vandemar, it's like the fox and the wolf. But they're just, like, a lot more creepier than the stories my grandma used to tell me. Yeah. But there are these fairy tale monsters, you know? Yeah. Like, they're not human. They don't bleed when they're cut. That's But they're corporeal, which is, I think, the thing I'm mm. struggling with. Again, I want a definition. Like, I, the ambiguity I struggle with. I want to know exactly what they are. I want the reality, thank you. <laughs> like, they both twist reality, right? Like, all these expectations, even within London Below, they really subvert expectations. Like, you know, Vandermaas throws that knife through his own hand and then heals himself mm. by spitting on it. Gross. Thanks. Super gross. And then when they go to um, Varney, he crumples up the sword in, in his hand and he does a lot of that. And it's just like, yeah, okay. So there was another thing I picked up with Varney, which was the knack, which I think means yeah. like special magical talent. 
and he can move things with his mind. So that's Varney's neck. And if Dora's neck, so to speak, is being able to open doors where doors aren't or doors Mm -hmm. don't open, like that might be her neck. And Varney's neck is moving things with his mind. Krupp and Vandemar is that they don't bleed and they can get into places they shouldn't. Mm. And what they're like just really good at killing. I don't know. And maybe not everyone has a neck, right? It's interesting that, you know, Richard's trying so hard to understand the world. He's like us. He's really trying. Mm. And he's like, you know, he asks, anesthesia you know so are you a rat because he's like oh I'm gonna try and engage on this level and she's like no no I'm just a rat speaker and he asks about door and he's like so uh which uh barony is she part of because he's heard that so he's just like parroting it back I do like that he tries I think that if he had a knack it would be his compassion his ability to connect yeah like he's frustrated in a way that I think everybody would be that their entire life is suddenly dissolved But now that he's in this situation, he's trying to make the best of it every single time. Mm. Maybe his knack is, um, you know, seeing people who are invisible. Just makes me feel like I need to pay better attention to the world around me. What am I not seeing that I could be bearing witness to? Yeah, I'm not good at that. I'm kind of just in a bubble. Yeah, yeah. I'm a very internal person. Yeah, and I think even when I'm like walking to work, for example, sometimes I get to work and I'm like, oh, I have no recollection of the walk here because <laughs> yeah. I just do it on like autopilot and I've got a podcast on and I'm thinking about things and I'm like just a thousand miles away. I'm not present. So I could be walking past someone who knows me and they could be like, hi, I probably wouldn't even know. Like I wouldn't even notice yeah, them. Yeah, I've definitely been there. It's like the story of my entire life. well is there anything else that stuck out at you any other tangential marginalia no i wanted to talk about richard's mum, and we've already talked about that because i just thought you know that really jumped out at me but i do hate the implication that she faded away because her reasons for living were no longer there so yeah his dad had passed away and then richard leaves the home and he's she's like oh well guess i'll give up look i have a very old lady hobby you know i quilt nice so so i know a lot of old ladies and like literally every single old lady i know is an absolute spitfire Mm. and they keep close contact with each other and they have these amazing social groups they know everybody and they like know everything about everybody so when people write women old women like this as if they've just sort of like faded away into nothingness i'm like this person has never talked to an old woman (laughs) it just drives me nuts it makes me feel like i should really get into quilting and make a like join a quilting group because then i'll always have friends oh my goodness honestly joining any hobby group is such a great way of just meeting people (laughs) yeah i feel like a quilting group is actually a really good one because sometimes i worry about this you know i worry about dying alone because i'm an only child and you know at one point my parents are going to pass on and it's just going to be me and I know that in theory everyone dies alone you know I walk through the cemetery behind my house sometimes and I look at the the dates and the the people buried together and I just you know it's just like wow you know they were married for 20 years but she still lived 10 years longer than him yeah there's all these things that play into it and I think about my grandma you know who is now on her own and all these things and it's like if Essentially, we all die alone. But I would like to have friends. Like, I don't want to not have anything. And it's like, well, you can have loads of friends. You just have to go out and find these groups. Like, yeah. it's just a weird thing that you get into your head where you're like, oh, I'm going to die alone. Nah. Anyway, crib. Nah. <laughs> nah. Look, and look, I mean, yeah, everybody dies alone because it's something you experience by yourself. Mm. But, you know, the connections we make in our life haven't evaporated just because we're not there to sustain them. I don't know. Yeah, and it's also not 
the alone bit really i think that is the issue that if you have a full life then you're not afraid of death right like if you make the most of every moment sure. then yeah um did you have someone you'd like to spotlight this week i absolutely do i would like to spotlight anesthesia because she should have had a better reality she had mm. a traumatic life her mother was lost to her for through mental illness she was separated from her sisters she ended up in an abusive household she was assaulted she had to run away and sleep and live on the streets and then she became basically a servant to rats which might be fine in her reality but feels very uncomfortable for me and then she dies and it's not fair and I don't like it and I can't imagine mm-hmm. any universe in which the loss of a vulnerable person is ever acceptable yeah well said she deserved better absolutely how about you do you have anyone you'd like to spotlight I want to spotlight door because she should not have had to go through that trauma the way that she did. Like, she was re-traumatized. She had no compassion, no support, and was just expected to carry this weight entirely on her own. And all the while, you know, she's still on the run for her life as well. Mm. Like, she's still trying to solve a mystery, and she just has this immense grief of not only losing her family, but witnessing it in such horrible ways. And I just... Just... She needs, she deserves compassion and kindness and time to rest and grieve and she can't have it. And I just think that is awful. She also deserves a better reality. Yeah. Well, you know, next week we're reading chapters five to six through the theme of impossibility. So. Yeah. I'm interested to see how Richard does in London below. And I'm really interested to, to learn more about the floating market. So I am looking forward to knowing about that. So, anyway. Yeah, well, thank you for potting with me. This was such thank a good you. chat. It was a, hard, it was a hard week doing reality, I think. It was good to share it with you and just, like, tease out some thoughts because it's easy to spiral into nothing is real and nothing matters. <laughs> Flip's table <laughs> runs through the house. Like... <laughs> Everything is subjective. Nothing is real. Ah! If I can't see you, do you cease to exist? Oh my god. <laughs> Object permanence. What? Oh man. Um, yeah, so thanks so much. And let's chat again next yes, week. Yes, I can't wait. It's going to be exciting. Yeah. All right, see you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at marginaliapod.com.